Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. And we're excited to have a, really an expert and a thought leader in the health IT industry with us today. It's Mickey Tripathi. He's former CEO of Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative, and now he's the Chief Alliance Officer at Arcadia.io. Welcome, Mickey. Thanks, John. Really delighted to be here. Yeah, well, I mean, I, we've met a lot of times over the years, so uh, I'm, I, I've always appreciated your insights and glad we can bring them to our audience. But you know, the big news that came out recently was that the collaborative that you were CEO of is really winding down its operations. It was a nonprofit, I believe. And, and so, you know, that's an interesting, different, different than a business, I think, winding down the operations of a nonprofit. But you're also transferring some of the assets to Arcadia. So tell us about what went into this decision to wind down the collaborative. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I really appreciate you reaching out and appreciate the interest. So thank you. Um, yeah, so we, you know, we were founded in 2004 as a nonprofit collaborative originally to, um, to, to run some pilot projects that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts uh, was, as, uh, had put some money up for. So there was, you know, we, one of the things that uh, is always hard now, you know, here we are in 2020, but you have to project yourself back to 2004 and realize back then, um, we had no idea, as you recall, how we were going to get people to adopt electronic health records, right? And it was like, you know, 10% of providers had them, and half of those were, you know, my brother-in-law's access database, um, which I swear is the greatest EMR in the world. And um, and so Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, um, decided with um, working with the Massachusetts Medical Society as well as the Massachusetts um, uh, chapter of the American College of Physicians. Um, they they decided they were going to put 50 million dollars um, into sort of a community pot to fund uh, essentially some pilot projects to really you know sort of see if they could push forward in Massachusetts at least um, a common understanding of what are the benefits what are the costs what does it take to get electronic health records adopted at a at scale and you know one of the reasons that they you know did that was because you know again as you may recall it was really a stalemate back then about <clears throat> about you know who actually benefits from electronic medical records, which is why we were seeing a lot of underinvestment. And right? providers, you know, doctors and hospitals felt like we're being asked to make all the investment, but everyone else benefits and we don't. You know, the payers benefit, patients benefit, labs benefit, everyone benefits, but we don't. So we're not going to invest, you know, because we're not getting any of the benefit. So Blue Cross was willing to say, you know what, we might be willing to think about some kind of cost sharing here. Um, but let's, you know, let's do an experiment. So anyway, fast forward, they put up $50 million. That was the launching of the collaborative. They decided they, it, you know, Blue Cross was very adamant that it needed to be a community project, not a Blue Cross project. So they helped to inspire the founding of this nonprofit collaborative. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be selected to be the, um, to be the CEO. Um, and, uh, and then we launched these pilot projects, which we ran for uh, three years. Um, well, like this is like four years from 2005 to 2009, and those were you know it involved 600 clinicians, four hospitals across three markets in Massachusetts. And what we did is we uh, paid for electronic health record systems, health information exchange technology in each of the three markets, 
and the clinical quality data and um, warehouse and analytics service on top of all of that. So you had sort of three layers. And, um, and so then, you know, that was a nonprofit, you know, kind of pilot project. And we ran those pilot projects um, and, uh, and everyone was very happy with the results. And we learned a ton of lessons that we, you know, tried to share both in Massachusetts as well as with the market at large. And, um, and then in 2009, as we were thinking about, well, the pilot projects are done, maybe we should wind down the, you know, the collaborative because, you know, the job well done, right? It was just a project and that's what we were there for. And, uh, you know, and I, um, I was, you know, perfectly prepared to say, let's move on to the next thing. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened right around then, you may recall, is the economy crashed. We had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and we had high tech. And all of a sudden we had meaningful use and $30 billion behind that. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, the board sort of um, slammed on the brakes and said, all right, time out. Let's just think about this for a second. And we started getting market demand for the kind of capabilities that we had built, um, which I can talk about, you know, a, a little bit later. Um, and so that was that was when we decided, all right, we're going to pivot and we will now become just a fee-based service organization. But because so much of the money was um, in support of meaningful use and all of those, you know, sort of um, community health goals that uh, that that were behind behind, you know, the High Tech Act, um, you know, we felt very confident that you know that we were still fulfilling a nonprofit mission. So we kept the organization as a nonprofit, even though at the time we thought, well, maybe we should flip to for profit, but Again, we were doing mostly work that was, you know, rooted back in government funding for this, you know, this this uh, nationwide, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, investment to move all providers forward to improve um, health at large. So yeah, let me stop you there for a second. I mean, it's just fascinating to think that you are buying EHR for the practices in order to facilitate the interoperability, right? Like, I mean, now we would almost be like, it would be a joke to pay for the EHR now. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, we often say, well, what came of the $36 billion of High Tech Act money, right? And, and you're like, well, the answer is, now you can do interoperability and you don't have to pay the doctor for their EHR, which- Right, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, I think you're absolutely right. Because one of the things, you know, that we, um, you know, we're always sort of in this situation of saying, oh, we're so behind in interoperability, but you can't have interoperability until people have electronic health records. I mean, you yeah. can't have phone network if people don't have phones. So, <laughs> um, so I think that was just a you know, fundamental piece of it that it's now, you know, and uh, as we think about, you know, where are we headed in the future, the nice thing is we've got that foundation laid now and we can start to think about what are the things that we can do on top of that. Yeah, and let's talk about some of the things you guys did accomplish, and then we can, you know, move forward to the Arcadia move as well. But you know, I, I, you guys were even the wreck, if I remember right, uh, for, for it, right, to help implement. Uh, so I mean, you you did the wreck, you did interoperability. What are some of the big accomplishments that that you're really proud of that the collaborative was able to accomplish? Yeah, so I, I guess I would point to a few things. Um, one is that um, that you know we learned some lessons really early um, that were painful, painful lessons um, that, that ended up um, becoming uh, things that got, um, that, that got incorporated um, in, the, um, in, in the Meaningful Use Program, the national program. Because you know, if you go back to you know, when we were doing this, we were the only activity that was doing this at scale across a community in the country. I mean, it seems funny to think about it again. You know, now, of course, you know, Kaiser was making their large investment in Epic at the time. And you had different organizations within, you know, integrated delivery networks and hospitals making those investments. 
But you know, in 2004, 2005, we were the only ones doing this at scale. And actually, it was it's a funny coincidence that um, you know David Brailer, who was the first um, uh, national coordinator, we invited him to come up for our kickoff, which he did. He was gracious enough to to fly up for our kickoff. And one of the things he joked about was that he, you may remember, the first budget he had was 52 million dollars, and we had 50 for the entire country, and we <laughs> had 50 million dollars for three markets in Massachusetts. And uh, and at the time, uh, uh, Congress was holding up his money as well. And so one of the things that he joked about when he was up here is, you know, he said, I, I really want to see, you know, A, talk to the people who are actually going to be able to accomplish something and who actually are going to be able to spend the money. Um, but um, so some of the lessons that we learned, you know, very early on um, were that, you know, one, first and foremost, that, you know, this actually is something that has to be actively managed, particularly among small practices. And that was really, you know, you can follow sort of a direct thread from those lessons to the regional extension center program, because, you know, early on, you know, we hired, we, we went out, we hired a vendor to do the hardware installation at all the practices. And then we hired software vendors, you know, e, um, uh, EHR software vendors. And then, you know, my, our, our thought was, okay, we're gonna be a very highly leveraged organization, small staff, We'll manage these vendors. We'll make sure they're meeting their milestones, and then that'll be it. And so we we launched five. It was five to seven pilots across these three markets, and it was a disaster. I mean, it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, you know, the, there was no coordination. You had these different, you know, different people just showing up at the practice. No one knew how it all fit together. You know, the software vendor, of course, felt like the hardware vendor was supposed to do everything. The hardware vendor felt like software vendor. Both of them thought that the practice should be doing more. And, you know, and we were nowhere to be found, right? Because we thought, well, the vendors are going to do that all. We're paying them a lot of money. And so one of the lessons that we learned, um, and, you know, one of the funny stories back then is my, my father is a physician in Massachusetts. And, uh, and when we launched those five to seven practices, the hard part wasn't that they called my board chair to say, hey, this is really bad. They were calling my father. These doctors were literally <laughs> calling my father and saying, your son is a good boy, but boy, is he screwing up here. <laughs> so anyway, my father was calling and saying, what is going on? Um, the very early lessons was, you know, we stopped it at the end of those first pilots and said, all right, we need to rethink this entire thing. And went back to the board and said, we're going to have to staff up to create a support organization that is actually going to project manage every one of these 200 installs because it was 600 clinicians they were in 200 sites across these three markets and we said you know we're the ones who are going to have to own that so at the end of the day we have single point accountability so i can look that doctor in the eye and say you know i'm responsible not not eclinical works not all scripts not the hardware vendor i'm responsible at the end of the day and it's our job to make sure all these vendors are working so that ended up becoming a lesson learned that um that new york city um, ended up adopting when Farzad Mostashari and Matt Kendall were, you know, in New York City. They got um, $20 million from Mayor Bloomberg, um, the city, not Mayor Bloomberg, but from the city to um, uh, to do a similar large-scale experiment. And they came up to Massachusetts, and we talked a lot about the lessons learned that we had, and one of them was about building a support team. Farzad and Matt, of course, then went to the National Coordinator's Office yeah. and ended up you know, creating the blueprint for with the regional extension center and a whole bunch of the other things that, you know, that were lessons learned there. So that was one of the things that, you know, was a lesson learned. The second thing is if you look back at the, when you were talking about the money that you were talking about, if you look back at, um, at the amount of money that we spent, actually. So at the end of the day, there was always a question of 
how much is this going to cost? How do we even figure out what this is going to cost? That was one of the blue cross, one of the things that Blue Cross wanted to you know sort of um, answer. And so one of the things that we um, that we did is we provided you know we did a, a complete accounting of how much it cost per doctor for every single piece of it, hardware, software, training, support, all of that, and came up with a number that it cost us about thirty-seven thousand dollars per provider to get this done. That was, a, that was gonna be the cost that a provider would have to pay if he or she was gonna do this on their own. When you fast forward, look at the Meaningful Use Program, what were the numbers that they ended up providing? It was thirty-five dollars to $40,000, and maybe up to $60,000 if you're a health center, but it was right in that range, I think, again, drawing directly from those lessons learned that helped inform how do we do this at scale across the country. So as I said, a, lot, you know, a couple of things that we really wanted to accomplish at the beginning was how do we inform the industry in the community about how you get this done. And that's you know part of what I'm really proud of, that we're able to sort of offer some lessons that people were then able to jump on and, um, and, and take. The other, the other thing I would point to is we, once we got past the pilot projects, we were able to um, help other, other markets, um, HIE organizations, other provider organizations across the country with writing their plans for statewide HIEs, for example, with helping them with vendor selection, um, and a variety of other things that we were able to do under a nonprofit umbrella that gave us a lot of trust. Um, that again, I think you know, uh, helped to offer a lot of uh, you know a lot of value to those organizations. I think and to accelerate um, you know their learning since uh, since we at least had one big experience under my belt under our belt, which was one more than everyone else had you know uh, had. And then I guess the last thing was our lessons learned around standards. Um, that, that help to inform things like, you know, the ultimately, you know, contributions to um, the, the um, HIT Policy Committee, the HIT Standards Committee, because we had gone through all of the muck of consent technical standards for, you know, connecting up EHR systems. How do you, you know, um, uh, do that appropriately in a live health information exchange? And then how do you extract that information out into a data warehouse where you can then run analytics on those and calculate clinical quality measures. We were doing all of that in 2007 um, in very primitive and crude ways, um, but I think uh, you know we also were able to, by participating in those national level policy organizations, at least provide the on the ground experience that we had that helped inform that at least you know with some with some real market experience um, that hopefully made that better than it otherwise would have been. Well, and it seems like you have been at the core of the interoperability. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I knew some of the implementation stuff, but I didn't realize the whole background. But you definitely have created a name and been part of that whole standards and interoperability. Is that one of the things you you still haven't fully accomplished, or you know, what are some of the things that you you, know, you wish you would have accomplished more and, and still need to be done? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I mean. You, know, you can always go back and say, boy, there's a whole bunch of things that we could have done, you know, better. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that, you know, that knowing what we knew, I'm not sure, you know, how many of those things we wouldn't have just made the same mistakes all over again. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, some of the things that I think that, uh, you know, that might have focused more on, um, if I think about the Mass eHealth Collaborative itself, we probably would have focused more on driving quality outcomes more than we did. We were so focused on can we just get these systems into the hands of providers and have them using them, that'll be mission accomplished, right? And you know, and 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 so we did have you know uh, another thing that we had that uh, that was interesting and and sort of had a direct path to the idea of meaningful use was 
the contracts we had with those providers because we were paying for everything, right? So it was completely free to them. Well, of course, they had a lot of skin in the game because they were the ones who had to adopt it and they had revenue loss and all those things, but they didn't have to pay for the hardware, the software, or the staff. Um, and, you know, but one of the things we put into the contract is what we called our use criteria, which was you're getting these systems for free. Here are the things you have to do. You have to e-prescribe. You have to get electronic lab results delivery. You have to document your system. You have to um, enter structured problems. Um, so again, you know, an interesting sort of uh, precursor to what meaningful use ended up becoming. Um, but uh, so I think that, but but we didn't focus as much as in hindsight, I would have liked to have done in the way of quality saying, how do we push forward to get better quality measurement and help people understand how you can use the systems to improve quality and, and efficiency in a much more, you know, sort of focused way. Um, with respect to, you know, the lessons learned as we think about interoperability and where we are now and where we have to go, um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, in hindsight, again, there's been a lot of criticism that, you know, that, that we should have pushed interoperability um, sooner in the meaningful use program, right? That, boy, here we are, we're still here. These systems aren't as interoperable as we thought they would be and all of that. But again, I think if you follow, you know, the, the meaningful use trajectory of phase one, phase two, phase three, it was very deliberate to sort of say, you know, first you have to get people just to adopt the systems. I mean, they have to be able to use those systems before you start thinking about how you're going to connect them up. Um, because you know they can't even figure out how to use the systems in their own office, let alone you know sort of all of the complexity that comes around you know consent and um, sharing of records you know across state lines and all of that stuff that was really complicated. So I'm not sure that you know that the phasing you know was was it was a mistake. Um, I think that perhaps we could have you know sort of focused a little bit more on um, on on uh, perhaps you know that it came a little bit later in the process when direct. And the notion of you know sort of understanding push versus pull and the ability to um, unpack interoperability. So you know it may be that uh, that you know that, that um, in hindsight you know we might not have spent the 700 million dollars that we did on state HIE programs. You know that uh, that each state got a certain amount of money to create a statewide HIE. Um, very few of those I think have ended up um, uh, ended up in sustainable. HIEs that you can trace back. I mean, the ones that are still up and running are the ones that were successful before, right? You know, Rhode Island, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, <laughs> um, you know, a couple of others. You know, <laughs> most of those were already around. Nehin in Massachusetts, they were already around. They were able to benefit from the money, but, you know, and now they continue. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, but, you know, but there were still lots of lessons that were learned from that too. So when I think back on that, I think of it as well. Maybe it was $700 million that wasn't spent on creating na on nationwide interoperability in the way that we had thought about it at the time, but it was a very valuable experiment in, um, in basic research on what are the complexities of HIE? How do we think about consent policy? How do we think about you know, the ways of, um, of getting adoption? Um, who are the different stakeholders that you need to have participate to make, you know, to make HIE work? Um, and I think all of those lessons were lessons that helped to, you know, propel, um, you know, Commonwealth and care quality in the nationwide networks that we have today. Hopefully, and you know, I think in a way that uh, is faster and better than would have been if we hadn't spent that money on these statewide experiment on these state level experiments. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting your comments about focusing on maybe you know some meaningful measures uh, sooner and, and the impact on how to use EHR to do that, but. 
I think people have this revisionist history in their head because back, you know, I started blogging essentially the same time as you, about a year after. I'm 15 years uh, this this uh, th at the end of this year, uh, and so I went through the same cycle you did, right? <laughs> and and back then the goal was how do I upcode, right? Like it wasn't how do am I interoperable. If I adopted an EHR, it was because I wanted to be able to not even upcode because that's a legal term, right? But I wanted to be able to code at the level of care I was giving, but I was unable to document in the patient chart. I mean, that was the discussion. That was the financial driver. It wasn't let me adopt an EHR to improve care and to get records from other organizations. I mean, that was like a further thought from their head, right? And right. and so like, even someone who says, oh, meaningful use was meant to drive interoperability, it's like, um, no, it was meant to adopt the EHR. And then I, I would add one other layer, which is interesting, is uh, you know, we take for granted the benefits of being able to read the chart being able to quickly access the chart, right? Like, you know, like those are things that are incredible benefits of an EHR. And as soon as they happen, we just assume, oh yeah, of course, that's how it always works. And I guess that's really where now as you look forward and you move to Arcadia, you know, why was that a good fit for you going forward with them? And, you know, what else is there still to be done as you, you know, as you move into this new position at Arcadia? Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, the MassCal Collaborative, you know, we, as I said, we launched it in, you know, 2004, late 2004. And, you know, I, I had assumed it was going to be like a five-year thing, right? Probably less, as I described. And then, um, then here we were 15 years later, um, you know, still running this nonprofit. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and a couple of things happened that made it very clear um, to, you know, to, to me and the board that it was time to transition the organization. Um, so one of them was just that, you know, we were operating as a nonprofit and, you know, and operating as a nonprofit in, in you know, in very good faith over that entire period of time. Um, but, you know, but we were getting to the point that we had a for-profit subsidiary. So we were able to take in, from, you know, for-profit fees and then we would pay, pay taxes at the end of the year on things that were, um, that, that were genuinely for-profit. So we had that model, um, but we started to get a higher and higher fraction of our revenues were from the for-profit side to the point that it was something like 70% as we were going that, and that looked like it was steady state. Now we had had these issues in the past, but it always had flipped around. And so we were always, always able to, you know, discuss with our attorneys and discuss with our accountants that, no, you're not, you know, you're still not in, in, in uh, you know, in, in an issue where, where it violates your nonprofit mission because these things are going up and down and there seems to still be a lot of nonprofit um, community health um, oriented kind of work out there. But now as we look ahead, right, it's very clear, we're not gonna have another meaningful use. Um, we're not gonna have, you know, these kinds of, you know, public dollars or public oriented dollars coming. So we, you know, discussed with the board, all right, it's very much time for us to now convert the organization um, to, a, to a different corporate model. Um, you know, we, we wanna do this ahead of when, you know, we don't want the IRS telling us that we have to do this. All right, we're a good, you know, we're a good citizen. We wanna do this uh, because, you know, because it's the right thing That's to do. That's good, so why Arcadia? So, yeah, so so with Arcadia, so what we did is we decided that um, uh, that we also decided that we weren't going to try to go out on our own, right? Because that's the other thing we could have done is say, well, why don't we just flip it to a for profit? We'll go out and raise money and talk to a bunch of bankers, and you know, and, and we'll do that. And you know, if we were doing that six, seven years ago, maybe that would have been a good idea. But now the market's really different, right? I mean, you know, there are tons of startups out there, a lot of competition. That's great, right? That's an ecosystem. 
and we are not, you know, we are not the kind of organization that would have competed well, I think, as, you know, we had nonprofit mission in our roots. So it's like, that's not going to really work real well for us to try to go compete for VC dollars and try to change the fundamental culture of the organization. So that's when we said, all right, it makes sense for us to transition to a larger um, organization that can help us, um, you know, sort of take everything that we've done and incorporate that and even, you know, hopefully help them move forward. So we had, we, we um, did some diligence around a few companies that we thought were aligned with us culturally, because that was really important. And we had 20 employees, wanted to make sure that, you know, it was going to be a good fit for us and that it was a graceful transition for the collaborative. Um, and, uh, and then we ended up, you know, uh, talking to Arcadia most closely um, for a number of reasons. One is they're a Massachusetts-based company and we had worked with them for a number of years, actually, um, as, as you know, sort of somewhat competitors, but we also had some common, some common customers that had us working together side by side. So we had a good feel for the organization. Um, and they, you know, they do a lot of things that uh, were the kinds of uh, things that we were headed toward, which was we had this data analytics business and more and more of our business was headed in the data analytics space. And, um, and Arcadia is a technology vendor first and foremost. And they've got a population of management solution, which was very, you know, sort of complementary in some ways to the kinds of capabilities that we had built and, and, uh, and where we wanted to go. So that's what made it, a, you know, a really good fit, I think, is from a mission perspective. Um, you know, it was a nice fit for where our business was headed. From a cultural perspective, Arcadia is very mission oriented, um, focused on value-based purchasing, value-based care and driving, um, uh, helping organizations, uh, you know, drive higher quality and greater efficiency in population health in general. Um, so that was, a, you know, a nice fit as well. And, and the fact that it was a Massachusetts company was really, you know, it, it was pretty important to us. Um, you know, most of the headquarters are here in Burlington, Mass, and our roots are in Massachusetts. They have a big Massachusetts customer base. And so a lot of the organizations who were our customers um, were either were Arcadia customers or transitioned to being Arcadia customers, which helped with the, you know, with the transition as well. Yeah, and it makes sense from a staff perspective because if you live in Massachusetts, you want to live there. Uh, that's what I found. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a lot of opportunity. I, I, the nice thing is for a lot of the team, uh, you know, Arcadia being a bigger, more sophisticated organization from a technology perspective and from a business perspective, opened up a lot of opportunities that people wanted to have, but you know, were a little bit stifled because we were a 20-person nonprofit shop. Right, but you know, Arcadia is uh, you know is a large organization and a leading um, uh, technology vendor in the population health management space. So, um, and leading on the on the technical side as well. So that opened up a lot of you know a lot of opportunities for people, which was great. And and it's been a really it's really been a really great transition. That's great. Well, we're gonna have to have you back uh, to talk population health and Arcadia, especially as you immerse yourself into it. But it also seems inappropriate if we don't mention COVID-19 in an interview. So before we wrap up, you know, you're you're kind of a leader in healthcare interoperability. You've been on a lot of the committees, a lot of the the progress around standards, a lot of a lot of different things. So what's your take on COVID-19 and, and interoperability? Uh, in, in in some ways, it seems to have uh, really shown a, a spotlight on why we need it, uh, and and also it's shined a spotlight on the fact that we don't have it yet. But what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a couple of things. One is um, that, uh, you know, um, so there's no there's no national strategy around any of this, right? So, and that always just makes it challenging, right? If we don't have a national strategy, it's really hard to figure out, you know, what it is you want to do and how do you make these pieces fit together? Because, you know, interoperability in some ways, you know, isn't that different than, 
other parts of the U.S. economy, which is very decentralized, right? So you know that's that's one of the challenges. But um, but I think you know as we think back on why is the infrastructure that we spend thirty billion dollars on not delivering the kinds of information and the kinds of capabilities that we would want to be able to help us through this uh, through this tragic pandemic, right? I think that's the question you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, one you know big part of that is we didn't have meaningful use for public health, right? So we um, we put all of the provider organizations on steroids um, by giving them this, you know, these uh, these sophisticated EHR systems. Gave, told them that you have to send all this data to public health, but 56 different public health organizations in the states and territories, right? So every one of them literally had we had you know different lab standards, you know, different versions of HL7v2, and the CDC and the federal government didn't have the ability to supersede the local autonomy that each of those. Um, each of those states had. So you still had a patchwork, even though you had public health reporting, ELR, um, you know, electronic lab reporting, um, syndromic surveillance, um, you know, registry reporting, all of that happening in all these different states out of these EHR systems, but all of it a patchwork, none of it really actionable because we couldn't put it together um, in a way that would, uh, that, that would make sense to you know, be able to solve the problems we have. And because we had the meaningful use for the providers, we were able to send the data to public health, but we didn't give them any resources to do anything with that data, right? So you literally had data just flowing and filling up these, you know, these these uh, legacy, very old, EH, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, software COBOL-based systems in, the, in these departments of public health. And this isn't their fault, right? I mean, they, you know, they're dealing with the resources that they have, and so they had no ability to really act on that and do the kinds of things that we want to be able to do now. I mean, I think when we look back, uh, you know, I think we're going to realize that. But part of the tragedy was that we didn't spend a bunch of those dollars on public health. Um, and, uh, you know, literally zero of those dollars went to public health. And, you know, that's one of the big gaps and the mismatches that we see today. Um, you know, I think we are seeing now, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, one benefit of having had that investment in, in, um, in uh, electronic health records, though, is we have nationwide event, not, event notification services that, you know, are now companies like Patient Ping, for example, that are able to, um, and Commonwealth is moving into uh, providing these uh, kinds of ENS services as well, um, that you know you have the ability because you have those systems to be able to get ADT information and now start to be able to at least have better tracking and better capability of understanding what's going on in all those systems. That'll unfortunately not be enormously helpful. I mean, it's somewhat helpful for where we are today, market by market, but it's not a truly national system um, and unfortunately, you know, that'll help us in the next pandemic, not quite as helpful in, in this pandemic, uh, I fear. Um, I think there are probably other things that we'll learn are being done, um, uh, you know, with the HR systems and with the interoperability that we have in place that aren't getting highlighted. Um, but, uh, you know, but I think that uh, right now people are too heads down to know that. So, for example, you know, Commonwealth and Care Quality, I think, as you know, exchange, you know, millions and millions of CCD records across provider organizations, you know, today. I mean, that, that's all live and, uh, you know, and, and it's being exchanged today. Um, but, you know, those are post-encounter, uh, you know, medical records. As we know, you know, there's been so many different changes in care, um, right? People not going into, you know, into office visits. Um, so it's, you know, one of the weird perversities that, uh, that in cases where people aren't actually making visits to provider organizations, um, interoperability doesn't help you with that. <laughs> um, there are actually no records um, to do anything with. So, that, you know, that's a little bit of the, you know, uh, 
know, sort of funny part of um, the odd part of, you know, the, the situation that we're in as well. Yeah, and you know, as your neighbor, uh, Dr. Dirk Stanley, who I, he, I think you probably know CMIO, you know, he, he wrote a great article uh, outlining, I, I think there was five places you can find out if someone has COVID-19 in the medical record, which is another example of lack of standardization. It could be in the chief complaint, it could be in the lab result, it could be you know, like, there was right. all these options. And so it's not as easy as saying, well, the HR should just report on it. That said, uh, I think we could do better than the Excel spreadsheet email that was offered by CDC as well. So. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, you know, some of the things that we're asking for are novel types of data, too. So that's a little bit of a challenge as well. You know, so we are, you know, we tried, you know, very hard that we've got the, you know, the, um, the, the CCDS, now the USCDI, which defines 24, 25 data elements that would have to be standardized in a, either in a CCD or in a FHIR API. So that's all there. But you know, guess what? When you actually want to, you know, really understand what's going on with respect to treatment of COVID, COVID, COVID um, acuity, severity, um, the different types of treatments that are being used, the different types of devices that are being used, ventilator status, ICU capacity, all of those things, those aren't in the US CDI, right? So now, if you want to get those things out of systems, Commonwealth and Care Quality aren't going to be able to help you with the CCDs they exchanged today. So the COVID-19 coalition, you know, one of the things that they did, and you know, this is, our, our system is, um, it was is patchwork, but has different layers. And so one of the things that's happened with, you know, with, with the EHR market is there has been a little bit more consolidation that's happened over time, right? And you may have seen with the COVID-19 coalition, um, one of the things that they were able to do was work with Cerner and, um, and Epic, who make up, you know, a large fraction of the hospital market, um, and get them um, uh, to agree on a common standard for data extraction out of their EHR systems. And so um, in each of those systems now, provider organizations can work with their vendor to be able to run a local query on, the, um, you know, on, on their instance of their EHR and, um, and then be able to deliver that data to um, the Mayo Clinic is aggregating that data to run the, um, uh, the research study on, um, on uh, I think it's convalescent plasma, but there's other kinds of things like that that they're just able to leverage the national scale that we have with you know with some of the EHR vendors. Um, you know, again, you would think, well, gee, couldn't an interoperability network have done that? The problem is that you're asking for data that isn't a part of the standard data that those interoperability networks were built to uh, to, to work with. So you have to work with the individual EHR vendors to try to get them to uh, you know do more with the you know with the systems. Um, and fortunately, you know, Epic and uh, and and uh, Cerner were able to very quickly step up and do that at scale. So that's, you know, I think one of the exciting things that I think hopefully we'll hear more about once we start to see that data get aggregated and used in in positive ways to help us get through this. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's a lot of other ones too. I don't know if you've seen the Saner project uh, that uh, Keith Boone for a motorcycle guy. Yes, with. absolutely. There's some others, like you said, uh, ICU beds. You, you know, there's no standard for that. And so, you know, I right. think that's a bit, so. everything about Saner was more about like a supply chain kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. It was asking, it was saying, let's not deal with clinical things, but how do we just understand our hospital and ICU bed capacity? As a supply chain phenomenon, so that was that was tremendous work um, on again the types of data that you normally wouldn't pull out of an EHR, um, and certainly isn't isn't something that was standardized uh, you know prior to this. So hopefully that'll fast forward that work and 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 have it be you know uh, production ready for again for the next pandemic. Well, and as you highlighted, uh, 
you know, the thing I, I maybe take away from this uh, discussion most is uh, how far we've come. Uh, you know, like, you know, from where you were when you started uh, the collaborative to where we are now, the opportunities are there. Uh, you know, everyone pretty much has an EHR. And so, you know, the, there's such a big uh, innovation opportunity that's available that before would have had, you know, layers of complexity. So thank you for your work and uh, thanks for sharing all your insights. Thanks everyone for watching. If you want to find more great health IT content like this, check it out at healthcareittoday.com. Thanks, Mickey. Great. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, everyone.